You're listening to episode 235 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor here at THR, and I'm joined by the one, the only, the great, the fabulous, the fantastic Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? Oh, it goes. Just uh, getting prepared for Halloween. What are you dressing up as, Leslie? Uh, a skeleton, but uh, more importantly, um, the bigger question is if I'm going to wear that costume actually out because we're going to the Boy Genius show at the Hollywood Bowl on Halloween. So I'm very excited. That does sound entertaining. Let's see. How elaborate a skeleton costume do you have? It's a zip-up, so not very... <laughs> It's like, know, a one, it's like a onesie. <laughs> sounds very comfortable. And warm, which is what I'm hoping it is, so. <sighs> we were just talking off air about how it's getting to be wintry in Los Angeles. It's not getting to be wintry in Los Angeles at all. It's not even really getting to be autumnal in Los Angeles. It's really pretty much the same as usual. I mean, I wore sweatpants last night instead of shorts because it was a little chilly out here in Burbank. But yeah, that was the first time in months. More importantly, the World Series is here, which is my indication that the, the, the long months of winter are right around the corner. So you've got the Texas Rangers playing the Arizona Diamondbacks. Not the matchup I think anyone really expected to see, especially at the start of the season. Should be a, a good, hopefully some good baseball coming up. Do you hear that sound, Leslie? Do you hear that sound? That's the sound of no one giving a shit because no, no one cares that's about the, the Rangers sound. and the Diamondbacks? That's the, well, there's that too, but I was going to say that's the sound of fives or tens or dozens of listeners hitting the 15 second forward button so yeah that's it we're not talking anymore about baseball because there's actually tv stuff we should give a small apology for our absence last week i don't want to give a big apology it wasn't like we over promised and under delivered we all tweeted the day before that owing to various circumstances we were taking last week off but normally we like to give people a little bit of lead time. So, for yeah. example, the week of, of uh, Thanksgiving in November, we won't have a podcast. So that's a warning comfortably in advance on that one. Anyway, last week, no podcast. Things were a little slow. And so we thought, OK, we're not going to force it. This week, things are also a tiny bit slow, but we're totally going to force it. And then, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then next week, our plan is actually, God forbid, to return to regular showrunner interviews. Not pretending the world is the same, but maybe a little. Yeah, I mean, we're trying desperately to not talk about the current state of the world, but consider this talking about the state of the world. I just, I can't bring myself to, yeah, it's just, it's very heavy. Every, everything, like waves arms and everything, literally everything is very heavy. With that in mind, we're going to try and, and spread some positivity here, except until we get to Critics Corner, which I hear is going to be, uh, I don't know if Angry Dan's going to make an appearance, but I know that there is a, a show that is very triggering for you, Dan. So I, I, al I already told you that Angry Dan might have come out if we talked about it a month ago. This is, this is going to be much more mellow, Dan, but there's definitely a high-profile, somewhat prestige thing coming to television next week that I'll give a quick review to, and it's bad. Before we get into that, we got lots to discuss, so we're going to lead off where we usually do with headlines. Number one. Up first, Basket's favorite, Martha Kelly. I love Martha Kelly. Will lead the voice cast for the new Netflix animated series uh, aimed at adults from a writer from Community and Rick and Morty. Not many details, but Martha Kelly, always funny. Baskets, watch it if you haven't already. Elsewhere, Paramount Plus continues to clean house and has canceled its Fatal Attraction update starring Joshua Jackson and Lizzie Kaplan, as well as Kiefer Sutherland's Rabbit Hole after one season and one showrunner, I should note, apiece. I don't understand why anyone thought that Fatal Attraction was supposed to be a multi-season thing. It made no sense. On the other hand, it had a really stupid, illogical, cliffhanger-y ending that 
isn't really a cliffhanger, but also wasn't really interesting. It was just sort of like, oh, okay, so we're doing that. And apparently when it comes to season two, we're not doing that. Oh, it wasn't any good. Continuing along, uh, Christopher Storer, creator of The Bear, has set up his next project under an overall deal with FX. It is an adaptation of the upcoming novel, All the Other Mothers Hate Me, about an American woman who suspects her son may have killed a wealthy student at his West London private school. Yeah, that's one of multiple projects that that myself and Lacey Rose reported on this week as part of a larger look at the sizzling hot IP market, meaning books, podcasts, news articles, etc., that are generating bidding wars featuring dozens of potential buyers all vying for the same titles. So lots of more information on that over at THR.com. Moving on, NBC has handed out a series order to Dr. Wolf, a medical drama from executive producer Greg Berlanti that brings Heroes grad Zachary Quinto back to the network. The drama was NBC's last remaining pilot in consideration from its pilot crop from earlier this year and will likely be part of NBC's 2024-25 schedule because, as you'll hear more in our next topic, the actor strike continues to linger on. And when we got the press release about Dr. Wolf, did I immediately send an email to our friend and former entertainment journalist Stu Levine from NBC asking for confirmation or denial if the character played by Zachary Quinto and Dr. Wolf is actually secretly a werewolf? Oh yes, I surely did. Did Stu tell me if he's a werewolf? No, he surely did not. So I'm taking that as a confirmation that the character in Dr. Wolf is totally a werewolf, even though apparently based on Oliver Sacks, who was not to the best of my knowledge, actually a werewolf. Yeah. And before we uh, we, we wrap up headlines, just a quick shout out. Uh, you mentioned Stu Levine. He and I share an alma mater. That's Cal State Northridge, both of us coming from the journalism program. And a big shout out to Cynthia Rawich, my original mentor, and for helping to ring in the 65th anniversary of the journalism department at Cal State Northridge show. Shout out to all my fellow matadors. And I, I had not known that. Do we want to give the last little bit of headlines? So Amazon has picked up a second season of Gen Z, that being, of course, the spinoff from The Boys. And Netflix will be bringing back Sweet Magnolias for a fourth season. So you might think, surely Netflix cancels everything after one season, two seasons, three seasons, but not steel, not Sweet Magnolias, steel, Sweet Steel Magnolias, Steel Sweet Magnolias, Magnolias. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you can just let me you can just let me ramble and riff on the word magnolia for the next 10 to 15 minutes. Uh <laughs> I got nothing. I bet you you did not think that was the point at which no. I was gonna break you on this podcast. No, I was not expecting sweet magnolias, steel magnolias, magnolia steel sweet. I don't know. I've never seen an episode of the show, Dan. Have you? I, I have not. It was strangely, it was not a show the good people at Netflix thought was a potential critics favorite when it came out, but apparently it's an everybody else favorite. I mean, yeah. people absolutely well, love them. That yeah, show, I mean, so. that and, and Virgin River, those are kind of the, you know, the, the hallmark sappy kind of stuff. You know, there is that's also exactly what that's the bread and butter of Netflix these days, right? These big, broad shows that can court a big, broad audience. It's certainly a thing and i don't feel like either one of those two shows necessarily counts as a gourmet cheeseburger, gourmet cheeseburger no. but they might be mcdonald's cheeseburgers and those are extremely popular i Let's i could not actually chicken nuggets I, I, i'm gonna call these the chicken nuggets of netflix 
Ooh, I don't know if you've seen, they have two new special dipping sauces at McDonald's, Leslie. I don't remember their names, but I definitely saw a commercial in the background during whatever NBA opening night basketball I was watching the past couple of days. Definitely, I, I believe, mambo sauce and something else. Oh my God, have we gone far afield in this segment. No, <laughs> just no. This this segment was not brought to you by, I'm just kidding, all right. Well, no, she's not kidding. It definitely was not brought to you by the good people at McDonald's. Taste the rainbow. That's their motto, right? Taste the rainbow, McDonald's. Skittles. No. Yes. <laughs> why do I? Know, why do we know this shit? Any? Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Number two. Up next, we return to the strike zone to get the latest on what's happening with the actors' strike. SAG-AFTRA has now been on strike for more than a hundred days, and talks with the studios resumed this week after breaking down earlier this month. Joining us again to discuss where things stand with the work stoppage is THR's labor and media reporter and friend of the five, the great Katie Kilkenny. Thanks for joining us again, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. So SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP are back at the bargaining table this week. What's the expectation that there will be a deal this time? Well, the situation is delicate and it is unclear. Um, It looks like on Tuesday, the studios offered their latest proposal, which did not exactly address what SAG wanted when talks broke off on October 11th. The studios offered basically a new version of what they'd already proposed in terms of a streaming-based bonus. So that was the major sticking point the last time the talks broke off. So it really remains to be seen how SAG is going to react to that. And that is what should be happening today, Thursday. SAG will be reacting to this latest proposal. So for our listeners who don't necessarily have an encyclopedic knowledge of all this. Break down for us the difference between streaming-based bonus and the revenue-sharing plan that SAG-AFTRA is looking for. Absolutely. So SAG-AFTRA initially came into the talks wanting 2% of revenue generated by shows that performing casts are in. If you're watching The Crown, they'd want some revenue share from that show to the cast. Basically, the studios made sort of made it clear that they weren't going to accept that. So SAG began whittling that proposal down. Once that didn't work, they they pivoted to a new proposal, which was trying to attach a fee to every global subscriber of a streaming service, which would then go into a pool of money that would be distributed to CAS. The studios then said, no, we don't want to do that. And that's where talks broke off on October 11th. Now that they're back at the table, the studios are continuing to propose this streaming-based bonus, which is basically a proposal that the highest performing shows on streaming services, so things like Bridgerton on Netflix, would be able to get an extra residual for creatives, so in this case, performers, once they'd been on the service and done really well in 90 days. That would be it. And according to my sources, SAG-AFTRA doesn't think that the monetary value of this proposal is nearly as high as what they had been proposing. So it's still a little bit of like, there's quite a bit of daylight between the two sides. And how does this compare to the deal that the WGA got in terms of streaming-based residuals? So the Writers Guild did get what the studios are proposing for the actors, which is the streaming-based bonus. And it's more in line with what the Writers Guild was looking for in the first place, whereas SAG had this totally different proposal. But the Writers Guild did get their own version of this proposal. Is the feeling that this is really the lone sticking point, or will we discover, even if they find common ground on this, that there actually is something else equally large that would be the next sticking point? The feeling is that this is for sure the largest thing. You know, they're still, they still haven't come to a resolution on things like 
artificial intelligence, which is obviously a big one, minimum rate increases, so basically the minimum wages that you could have under the actor's contract. They haven't quite gotten there yet, and streaming residuals. But this is the big one that is really, really the the major thing that they need to come to terms on before any of that can fall into place. For our listeners that, that missed it, last week, a group of A-list stars, including George Clooney, attempted to step in and help end this strike by ponying up some money to help both sides meet in the middle and get the town back to work. Katie, why didn't this so-called Clooney proposal work? Well, it wasn't quite addressing what SAG-AFTRA is looking for in this contract. It essentially tried to funnel more money into the union to help the union sort of bridge the gap between what it wanted and the studios wanted. But ultimately, the way that they were going about it doesn't quite address what the union is trying to do in this negotiations, which is really to create a new paradigm for this streaming-dominated entertainment universe that we all live in that can better compensate actors and make sort of middle-class acting a more viable profession again. The A-listers, like Clooney, were proposing removing caps on union dues that they pay once they earn over a million dollars, which is great. I mean, it would it would add a lot more money into the union's coffers, but it doesn't quite address this, this problem that SAG-AFTRA is facing, which is that they really want to have their actors' compensation grow as streaming platforms grow and as that business becomes stronger. It was a little bit, as Fran Drescher called it, apples and oranges, but it also showed that A-listers were very concerned about getting people back to work. And so it's shown a little bit of tension within the union itself. Well, what conversations did you have with people in the aftermath of that? Were Were they surprised by, well, the proposal, the Clooney plan in general, but also by how badly it was received. Because I I feel like pretty much, at least in the sphere that I'm in, it was completely met with somewhere between incredulity and and some mockery. There was definitely some surprise. Um, I think that certainly the plan seemed to suggest that the actors hadn't really thought through what the implications are for a federally regulated labor union. That said, as we have reported in a recent piece, I think from the actor's point of view, they didn't think they were actually putting forward this like formal proposal that it was all buttoned up. They were just spitballing ideas, according to them and their camp. So they just wanted to get things moving and to come up with new ideas because they felt that we had reached the stalemate, which is an absolutely fair thing to think. So I think they were coming to it with the approach of, we just got to try something and then the union was maybe taking it a little bit more seriously than they had intended. Yeah. And I mean, what's surprising to me is that from a pragmatic point of view, it's the SAG doesn't want more money from its actors. They want more money from the studios. So while it feels like Clooney and company's heart was in the right place, it's really like these multi-billion dollar companies are the ones that need to be, be shelling out more money, not the Clooney types. I mean, although if they want to continue to pay pay more in dues to, to help some of their lower members, that's I, I'm not I don't necessarily think that that's a bad idea in general. But I think in terms of the contract and everything else and what they're on strike for, that's not the solution. Absolutely. And now that they've offered it, perhaps this idea will be resurfaced once the strike is over and the contract is resolved. But for now, it doesn't really quite address what what the issue is. Yeah, donate that money to to all the strike funds, you know, and all the below the line workers who have been out of work since before the summer, since the writer start writer strike started in May. You know, that's a lot of people in this industry are hurting, and I'm not just talking about the you know lower level actors. I'm talking about the crew all the way down to the lowest person in the credits or the very very last person in the credits um, at the end of the movie scroll or whatever it is. You know, like this is a challenging time to be in this industry if you're not, especially right now. Writers are back to work, and that's great, but there are still all the 
the crew from these productions that remain out of work heading into the holidays, which are coming up very quickly. Speaking of the holidays and their vague approach, feels like a long way off to me, but certainly conversationally, it feels as if they're very close to people. What are you getting in terms of a sense of the urgency that the end of the year brings with it, that that the sort of the notion that the industry generally shuts down at a certain point in late November and December, what urgency do you feel that's providing at this point? A source close to the studios in a recent story of ours said that the impact that the strike is having and in the next two weeks would have on the 2024 movie schedule and the broadcast schedule has been the major impetus for the studios to come back to the union and say, we want to restart talks. So that is the big seeming propulsion from the studio side. And certainly it's a it's something that is distressing people that if production doesn't get restarted soon, soon we're in the holidays. And that normally is a time that people take off. Who knows what would happen if, you know, production did restart in a scenario like this where people have been out of work for so long. But it is something that is weighing on people and is a big motivator in the, these restarted talks for sure. Yeah. The sooner that they can get a deal, the sooner productions can get back up and running and everything that that I've heard is a lot of the below the line people are going to want to work through the holidays with the exception of the actual day of the holiday, whether that be Thanksgiving, Christmas Day, or New Year's Day. So expect if there is a deal, I would would not be surprised to see a lot of these productions go through the the, the usual time that, that Hollywood shuts down. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, continue to read Katie's excellent strike coverage over at THR.com. You're doing an incredible job covering all of this, Katie. Thank you so much. Number three. Up third this week, Jon Stewart is a free agent again. The former Daily Show host has walked away from the third season of his talk show, The Problem, following creative differences with Apple, which wanted to see Stewart avoid discussing such hot-button topics as China and artificial intelligence. Dan, were you a fan of The Problem? Will you miss this show? I'm not going to miss it. I Like, the the problem. The thing is, I see what you did there, Dan. I sort of magnolias. Exactly. Words are weird. No, the show. I don't know that the show ever exactly found itself, but I think that the show very clearly was more confident in the second season. I think that the show had to find what its structure was going to be, what its voice was going to be, particularly what its tone was going to be. I think that was, for me at least, what the biggest problem was with the first season, was that it sometimes wanted to be very, very serious about things that back in the day, Jon Stewart was more able to be adroit in being both funny and serious about it. Sometimes he decided to turn off the funny at all. And when he does that, sometimes he leans into sanctimony in a way that doesn't play well tonally. Whereas when he finds the funny as well, he can be as sanctimonious as he wants and it it hits home. And I thought a lot of the second season did that. I thought a lot of the second season, the interviews felt like they were getting more traction. To me, the second season felt very close to what Apple probably thought they wanted from Jon Stewart. But then this whole story of the cancellation of the show and the way it's being reported as a disagreement about these two key issues that they were on different pages on, that then just becomes a confusion to me. Like, what was it that Apple thought they were getting? Yeah, I mean, sources say that that season three of the eight episode season was already in production at the time of the the disagreement. Apple decided to not move forward with it after Stewart walked away. So technically, you could call it a cancellation, but 
there's some some wiggle room in there. And sources told me that there had been tension between Apple and Stewart ahead of the show's third season return over topics featured on the problem. Those same sources noted that Apple approached Stewart and informed the host that both sides needed to be, quote, aligned on topics that were going to be featured on the problem. Stewart then balked at the idea of being, quote, hamstrung, as a source described it, by Apple, which threatened to cancel the series. And then instead, Stewart wanted to have full creative control. And after Apple threatened to cancel it, Stewart told the tech company that he was going to instead walk away from the show rather than have his hands be tied by them in terms of what he can and cannot discuss on the, on the series. Lots going on there. But in the meantime, I hear there's an opening for The Daily Show host, Dan. Yeah, that's that's kind of the, the funny part of this, obviously, with the first funny part being, why do you hire Jon Stewart if you're going to hamstring him or, or put boundaries around him? And why do you hire him in this landscape where viewers are so very aware of both the corporate interests and then the comic interests of the funny men. So somebody like John Oliver takes great pride in tweaking his business daddy and in making fun of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, formerly, you know, just all of the ownership groups that he's had to go through. He likes tweaking them. There's obviously a large difference between biting the hand that feeds you and biting the hand that feeds your corporate parent, which is the difference. Like biting the hand that feeds you is John Oliver making fun of HBO and its corporate ownership. Biting the hand that your corporate parent needs to survive becomes a different thing. On the other hand, I don't feel like John Oliver has been shy about, you know, commentary about China, commentary about AI, etc. And we know Apple has been incredibly guarded and protective about the use of technology on its shows in, in, in terms of scripted stuff and how it, that's presented, et cetera, because it does have, as you are in, insinuating here, a lot of vested interests with other companies. I, and I don't think I don't think it's, it requires insinuation to say that the Chinese marketplace is a big deal for Apple in the same way that the Chinese marketplace is a big deal for Warner Brothers Discovery. The Chinese marketplace is trillions of dollars. Of course, I understand the desire to be wary. I don't think that's the thing you're supposed to do necessarily when you hire someone to be a uh, an, an unfettered voice is to put fetters on them. That clearly is not going to be the thing that looks good. No, there's no there's no version of this that looks good for Apple. The question is just if this causes you to revise any of your feelings about Apple versus if it just confirms things you already pretty much just figured. And, and in that case, then what did Jon Stewart think he was getting into? Yeah, everyone, of course, immediately jumped into the, well, it turns out that The Daily Show is looking for a new host. And, you know, like, of course, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous on several key levels. The The largest level being that Jon Stewart is much too expensive to ever give any consideration to taking that job. But also, at this point in his career, why would Jon Stewart want to go back to a daily grind. He wouldn't. No sane person would. To me, though, like if I'm the Comedy Central, Viacom, Paramount, whatever, all the, you know, the ownership groups, I feel like you, you owe it to yourself to make a call to Stewart. And it's and it's not, you know, it's a call that probably begins with, look, we know you're not going to come host The Daily Show again, comma, but dot, dot, dot. And then it continues with, is there a host we can get you to endorse? Is there a host who might make it more likely that you might come back and do a monthly spot or a 
you know, a weekly spot, bi-weekly spot, whatever. It, or specials, like specials. You know, time to the elections or special or world events, anything. What what can we do that would get you back in the family to whatever degree you thought you wanted to be involved? I mean, he still I, executive I, produces that, right? Sure, he he does, but what that actually means on a practical level, who knows? I, you know, he was very supportive of Trevor Noah. He came on The Daily Show a few times. He he passed the torch in a literal way. And the show still probably does need his stamp or seal of approval. And obviously, they're in a position on The Daily Show where they knew it was not going to be easy to replace Trevor in the same way they knew it wasn't going to it was going to be impossible to replace John. But they've had their little struggles. There were the reports that Hassan Minhaj was going to be the front runner. And then that got a little bit torpedoed by the New Yorker story. And you can go to Hollywood Reporter and check out the video uh, and story where Hassan explains or gives his side of the allegations of fabrications within his comedy routine. And it's a whole additional conversation as to whether or not you feel as if comics are beholden to actual literal documentary truth. And, you know, he he has different feelings and he draws a distinction between when he's doing his stand-up routine and he can go for emotional truth, but he views himself as a comic storyteller versus what he did on Patriot Act, where he viewed himself as a comic news person, which required truth. Unclear. There was whatever the situation was in which Roy Wood left the show. There, That was kind of painted as a, you know, he would have loved the the, the main desk and it just didn't happen for whatever reason. And either one of them would have been great host for The Daily Show. And and so we're back to kind of that revolving door thing this week. Desus from Desus and Marrow hosted. And I have to say that I, I found myself missing Marrow. I felt like it was not a perfect fit for him. I, I would love for him to find a perfect fit for him. I would also love for him and Marrow to be friendly and to bring back their show. Anyway, though, yeah, so, but with with Jon Stewart, this kind of just points to the long journey that he's had since The Daily Show and the number of different hats he's tried to wear at different points, and to the truth that we don't really know what he wants to do. Like, he's written and directed movies. They haven't necessarily been well-received, but is that a thing he wants to quote-unquote master? There was the long time that he was developing that animated thing at, at HBO that had millions and millions and millions of dollars poured into it and yielded absolutely nothing, right, Leslie? I'm, I'm blanking if there was like a special that came out of it or something, right? Out of what? The HBO animated show. I have no recollection of that. <laughs> oh, there was the there was the HBO thing that was supposed to be a live, not live, but an animated semi-live news related program that tested the bounds of immediate animation. I don't know that anything. No, I mean they they scrapped it, and I don't yeah, think it no, ever it ever aired. It Nothing. didn't. I was I just wasn't sure yeah. if they had managed to salvage like a thirty minute special or something out of it, or if it was completely lost. So no, so I mean honestly, it was they treated. I'm looking up a story here from uh, July 2017 in which. Uh, there's a quote from HBO's Casey Bloys, who described it as thinking about it like a pilot or development. And the quote is, you, you take a swing and hope it works. In this case, it didn't. And you move on. And it was a multi-year process, though, in which it, it didn't work. Years so, of development. So, and, we, and, and the read on that is millions of dollars. Indeed. And, and so, like, he hasn't had the big hit. And it didn't feel in the first season like the problem was that. But the second season felt close. Like, there were, there were a couple of interviews that went 
viral and that kind of became conversational centerpieces and that just felt like Jon Stewart was doing exactly what he wanted to be doing. So that's what it comes down to with Jon Stewart is what does he want to do? What is his appetite now for a daily grind, a weekly grind, a monthly grind? This was not a a situation that ended up looking particularly good for Apple. Stay tuned to see what's next for Stewart and for The Daily Show. Number four. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about season 49 of Saturday Night Live, which returned a couple weeks ago. And we're going to start with a mailbag question from Ashley, who asks a question that I've seen many people on Twitter and various places ask. So we're going to get Leslie to give us the fairly straightforward answer, which is, how can SNL air new episodes? Shouldn't the cast be part of SAG-AFTRA? Well, the answer is... Dan, as you pointed out, is pretty simple. SNL cast members are covered under SAG's network television code, which also covers talk show and reality performers. So they can come back for the same reason why daytime and late night hosts have returned to their respective shows. So they're under a different contract. That's it. Bread and butter. And once again, it's the same thing when it comes to promotional stuff that basically people can appear. They just can't directly promote content that's made under the various sag after deals so people can host without reservation but they've had a somewhat odd assortment of hosts so far this season yeah pete davidson returned for the season 49 premiere he was of course supposed to host at the end of season 48 and that episode was wiped out because of the writer's strike and then the other host that we've seen already was a uh, he pulled double duty bad bunny hosted and was the musical guest so yeah dan what, what have you thought about this season i mean the cast has largely remained the same everyone came back from last season there's one new face I'll, I'll just say it i quit watching the show at the end of last year was there a particular reason for that or just it wasn't funny. <laughs> it wasn't consistently funny. And, and the bits that were consistently funny, I just watched the next day on YouTube. And I think a lot of people have gone with that, with the second part, because it's the thing we always say. This show has always been as consistently or inconsistently funny as it is. Just we kind of foreground in our mind whatever the number of great sketches is versus the number of duds. Always part of the of the DNA of the show is to have some things that fall flat and other things that are wildly successful. And I feel like a lot of people are like you and they're perfectly content to wait for, to wait, basically wait to see which two or three sketches go viral and that those are the things that they watch and anything else, <laughs> whatever. If, if nobody's talking about it, you can't really feel as if you missed it, which is the nature of things. As you say, there was very little cast turnover this year. I, I'm curious how much of that really did have to do with various strikes and the timetable on all of this, you know, that various members of the cast couldn't immediately find other projects to work on, or that there was just not the same opportunity for pondering of new generations of cast members and whatever. So yeah, as you say, the cast at this point, uh, Chloe Trost is the only new cast member, and then a few people were elevated up to repertory status, but there are still a few people who are featured. I think it's a a pretty good cast is the thing, and it's a very diverse cast, which I think has been to the show's benefit. I thought that last week's Bad Bunny episode was very interesting because it simultaneously had to tackle two things that the show either doesn't ever do or doesn't often do or do well. So with Bad Bunny, they had someone who was not inherently a comedic actor slash performer of that type. And so they had to work around that. And then they also had to not work around, they had to find a way to integrate 
bilinguality into the show. And that I thought was fantastic, actually. I I loved the idea that they had a primarily Spanish-speaking host of the show, and they said, okay, we're going to make sure that there's a pretty fair amount of Spanish, Spanglish, however you want to define it, integrated into the show. I I would go so far as to say they probably could have gone even further, but I liked how much of the monologue was in Spanish. I liked the two or three different sketches were either entirely in Spanish or partially in Spanish. I thought that was a great thing. Obviously a tremendous thing for uh, Marcelo Hernandez, uh, one of the featured performers who who got to be like hey look i i'm the cast member who speaks spanish please put me in many sketches he's also really good so i'm happy to see them giving him work and then when things weren't necessarily funny inherently the show kind of leaned into various guest performers they brought in fred armison obviously a spanish-speaking former cast member they brought in pedro pascal for multiple sketches obviously a spanish-speaking former host they brought in mick jagger uh, for multiple sketches which was just kind of funny and not random because obviously the rolling stones have a new album but still and he's been a friend of saturday night lives over the years but it was still a little surprising to see him and when he made his first appearance i had to rewind several times not he had a funny mustache so it wasn't instantly instantly clear who it was uh but also to get a feeling of when the audience did or didn't recognize who he was because it felt as if there were several beats at which people were like, I know I should know who that is, but I don't know who he is. And then probably someone sitting next to the people were like, oh my God, it's Mick Jagger. It was amusing. Also, Mick Jagger's really good on Saturday Night Live. I mean, all credit to Mick Jagger. He's a funny dude. I'm still unsure on Bad Bunny, whether or not he's a funny dude. And Pete Davidson, Pete Davidson just felt like he was in a confusing position because he could because he got to make jokes about the fact that no one had exactly watched Bubkus, but he didn't want to be promoting Bubkus. Didn't it get renewed? It did. But obviously probably got renewed for the most part because everyone wants to be nice to Lauren Michaels and all of that. Uh, Although if they wanted to be nice to Lauren Michaels, they probably wouldn't have suspended his deal. Oh, different, different timing. There was... It got renewed fairly early on. Uh, and I'll say again, Bubka's really, really good. You just need to get by the first episode, which is garbage. But And I don't know that I thought that either episode was was all that great, uh, but they were they were sort of spotty. They had moments. Uh, this this weekend is hosted by Nate Bargatze. So, you know, I said it on Twitter and I'll say it again. I definitely have the world of stand-up that I know. I had never seen Nate Bargatze's name. He's huge. So I need to make that clear. This is entirely on me. I am the one here who failed, not him. He sells out arenas, stadiums. He is as big as it gets very clearly. I don't know, man. 167,000 followers on social? Some people just don't use that. He sells out stadiums. He's huge. He has many comedy specials and many people on Twitter when I expressed my ignorance of him. And again, I need to make this clear. At no point did oh, I a say- A million followers on Instagram. There you okay. Go. He's big. I swear he is. And I never at any point tried to make it sound as if I was saying that he was not big. I tried to make it clear that this was my ignorance, not his, not his lack of stardom. But I went and I, I've now watched two of his comedy specials. Shockingly, he's a fairly funny guy. He's simply very, very likable. And I will be curious to see what he's like as a as a sketch performer, because that's not his background. But, but you look at the stars that they've had guest hosting so far, and it's eclectic and quirky more than it's been. And therein is the challenge of having these shows back while the actors remain out on strike, Dan. 
It is. It's interesting to see how they're handling it. And I don't know that they're necessarily handling it wonderfully, but I think that they want to put on a show. And I applaud the desire to put on a show. And it's a much more complicated thing. So like the late night people come back and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver has just been Last Week Tonight with John Oliver since it came back. It's it's just been the show. And of course it has. It's the writers, it's John Oliver. That's what the show is. It hasn't felt different. Saturday Night Live has felt different. I just feel like most viewers at home maybe can't quantify the ways in which it's been different. And they're trying to weather a complicated situation. And I I like that they're trying to weather it and trying not to alienate anyone in the process. It's just been slightly bumpy. And we'll see if it turns out that Nate Bergazzi is a funny guy in a Saturday Night Live way or just a funny guy in a stand-up comedy way. Because again, it's, it's not the direction that the show goes frequently when it comes to its hope. Yeah, but this is also going back to what SNL used to be back in the day. This is a platform to expose artists and to other audiences, to new audiences, right? You and I have not heard of this guy, but if he hosts and he's funny and his stuff goes viral, well, mission accomplished. He's used that platform for exactly what he was supposed to do. Right. I mean, there's been a lot of music, you know, when I was a, a regular SNL watcher and now you're I'm, I'm having like a, all the nostalgia of like, oh, maybe I should start watching again. But I found so many artists that I wound up really enjoying because I was first exposed to them on, on SNL. Right. I, I work from home almost exclusively now. So the amount of new music and stuff that I'm exposed to is often through TV or movies. And SNL is a great platform for that. And the fact that they're going back to that now, obviously not their first choice because they have the limitations of the actor strike to work with. But if they're going to go back to using that as a platform for people that a broader audience should know, that's great. Lots of opportunity there for other people and artists. I concur. Number five. Up next, as usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Showtime debuts Fellow Travelers, HBO returns to the Gilded Age for Season 2, and Netflix launches the limited series All the Light We Cannot See. Dan, what you got? So, you know, kind of a mixed bag, uh, not surprisingly. Let's start with some stuff that's already premiered. You go back a couple weeks and you can... Months? Who the heck knows anymore? You can hear our interview with uh, Brad Schwartz, who talked about the new direction of the CW and their acquisition strategy. Leslie, when was that interview? Brad Schwartz joined us to discuss his vision for the CW in episode 225 from August 4th of this year. And as we were chatting with Brad, either before or after the interview, he mentioned, you know, sort of of the various acquisitions He said, I think you'll like Everyone Else Burns, one of the comedies that they picked up, a British comedy. And he was correct. It premiered this week. It's about a Manchester of the England, not the New Hampshire variety, family that is part of a a fundamentalist doomsday Christian sect. For the most part, they're only tangentially Christian. There are times when they're more directly Christian. Uh, For the most part, it feels as if the creators are, they're trying not to offend anyone of general faith. They're trying to maybe offend some people of very specific fundamentalist faith, keeping in mind that none of those people are likely to be watching a family sitcom making fun of religion on the CW. There's a line they're trying to walk. The show is ultimately a pretty good family sitcom that's carried by the fact that the actors in it are great. Fans of The Inbetweeners will know Simon Bird as one of the stars of The Inbetweeners. They will not recognize him because he has a ridiculous beard and bowl cut combination that is basically Corky Sinclair from uh, Waiting for Guffman. That's pretty directly, I would say, what the inspiration is. 
But a lot of the supporting cast is people who I didn't know and who I thought were really great. Katie O'Flynn is wonderful as the main character's wife. Amy James Kelly is very good as the teenage daughter who's about to discover that normal aspects of puberty become very problematic if you're in a fundamentalist cult. And Harry Connor is very funny as the true believer young child who likes to draw pictures of various family members burning in pits of hell. It's a show that starts off with this very broad premise, but that already by the fourth episode, you can see aspects of heart beginning to come through that I found were very likable. So kind of the best case scenario here is something like Schitt's Creek, where it starts off being this show that's basically like, ha ha ha, country bumpkins, ha ha ha, Schitt's Creek is a funny thing to say, and then eventually really became a show about a community and about a family and about a love story, etc. I, I can see how this could follow that direction. Now, of course, because it's a British show, it means that the first season is only six episodes. It's already been renewed for a second season, but I assume that's also going to be only six episodes, which means that its ability to adapt and evolve on the fly in the way that Schitt's Creek did is somewhat limited or somewhat more truncated. And I'll be curious to see how they do it and how organically they can make it. But here I am seeing that I'll be curious to see how a, a CW comedy acquisition evolves. So the fact that I'm saying that feels like a fairly positive thing. I I liked this show a reasonable amount, so definitely a thing worth checking out. Uh, premiering on Friday is the second season of Shorzy, the Letterkenny spinoff, which I found myself liking more than I expected to in the first season. And then the second season, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, this is, this is not one where I'm going to go into any particular depth. If you like Letterkenny and you like Shorzy, you'll probably like the second season. It feels very much like that. The second season feels, to me, honestly, less like a, a wholly standalone show. It feels kind of like an interlude between seasons of Letterkenny, which is it's a minor disappointment. The first season, I felt like it was actually going into a direction where it could stand on its own. Here... It narratively stands on its own, but I don't know. For some reason, it felt more slight in the second season, which is not to say that Letterkenny is this hugely weighty show or anything. It's just, I really like the fact that this that this and Letterkenny, that they're both shows that come out every year, six episodes, 20 to 22 minutes per episode. You you laugh for 22 minutes of, of funny wordplay, and that's all you need sometimes. So Shorzy's coming back uh, to Hulu this week. Okay, so let's get into a little bit more depth here. Uh, the first season of The Gilded Age on HBO was, it was a big swing for HBO. We had Julian Fellows on the podcast, gosh, must have been about a million years ago, which is to say probably about a year and a half ago. Leslie, more specifically, when was Julian Fellows on the podcast? January 21st, 2022, in episode 152. Yeah, little, little over a year and a half ago then, in that case. Long, long time ago. And at the time, we talked with him, and you've talked extensively about that show's very, very long decade-plus evolution from the point at which it was supposed to be originally developed at uh, NBC. NBC, and then moved to, did it move to Showtime, or did it not move? It. I know Robert Greenblatt was sort of attached to it. I think he's still an executive producer on the show. So. I believe he's still an EP on it, but I yeah. can't remember where else it, it moved before HBO. If it was a long process. I think it was NBC turned HBO. The first season I didn't dislike, but I think what I said kind of in general about the first season is that narratively it didn't feel very cohesive or always coherent. And so you were watching it because Julian Fellows writes fantastic biting dialogue, and because the cast was absolutely out of control with 
Tony winners, Tony nominees, etc. And so even if you didn't care in the slightest what was happening on the show, you could be like, okay, I'm going to watch Carrie Coon. I'm going to watch Cynthia Nixon and Christine Baranski. I'm going to just play spot the Tony winner in various supporting cameos. And that will be the reason I will watch the show. And I wrote my original review off of, I think, five episodes. And then the sixth and seventh episodes I I thought were dreadful. And I stopped watching. I'm like, okay, I'm done with it. Season two's coming. I watched the the eighth episode, uh, the penultimate episode of the first season. I'm like, okay, this is just really not working for me. One more episode, and if it doesn't work, I'll, <laughs> I'll just move on with my life. Life will go on. And I really, really liked the finale of the first season. The first season's finale was like, okay, that they're here. Here's Julian Fellows telling fantastic soapy stories. Uh, this is exactly what I want the show to be. I'll at least sample the second season. Second season, I planned on sampling it. I did instead watch all eight episodes. I I would say that the show has settled into what it is probably, I don't want to say as well as one could hope, because the first two seasons of Downton Abbey are, are great TV to me. This is not great TV, but it absolutely much more clearly than the first season has the rhythms of Downton Abbey in 1880s New York City. The first season felt like it wanted to and couldn't quite hit. So that means that there are more soapy twists, more inappropriate love affairs, more scandals. Every once in a while, the show is trying to get at some serious things in the background, and it doesn't always do them as well as I would probably like, but I think I respect the attempt. So there's an extended subplot this season involving Morgan Spector's character uh, trying to break a strike of steelworkers in Pittsburgh. Doesn't play as well for me as I would have liked. There, The show is also making a, a much more conscious effort to give Danae Benton's character, Peggy, actual storylines this season. Last season, it felt a little bit like the show realized they needed to have more than just uh, wealthy white people and their and their less wealthy servants as characters. So they had a character who was a black journalist, but they didn't really know what to do with her. This season, she has full-fledged subplots. Again, they don't always work, but I, I like the effort that they clearly put into it this year. But more than anything, the show is just... It really is settling into both being soapy fun and giving the actors things to play that are entertaining. So the first season, Cynthia Nixon's character and Christine Baranski's character, they, they were basically Statler and Waldorf. They they made little snarky comments and and sat in a drawing room, and that's what it was. This season, they both have a, a very good arc, which is probably the season's best or one of the season's best arcs and uh christine baranski in particular is is sublime here she is perfectly happy with watching christine baranski play statler or waldorf and just or uh basically the maggie smith role from downton abbey and just be snarky for 30 seconds per episode she gets to do significantly more this season as does cynthia nixon um, I thought Louisa Jacobson, who some people thought was a weak point to the first season, I thought she was had much more to do this season. Again, some of it doesn't work as well, but I thought she kind of came more into her own this season. And then just it's it's always a a total pleasure to watch Carrie Coon be 
somewhere between straight up villainous and uh, and borderline villainous because you know the people she's being villainous towards for the most part they're <laughs> they're awful as well. So she's easy to sympathize with. But I think that the show is is more and more conscious that the mind games that she's playing and the power moves that she's making can have a corrosive effect. And I, I like I like the way she's playing it a lot. I think that this the season feels much smoother. There aren't the two or three episode stretches where I was ready to check out. I, you know, just kept going. I got to four. I'm like, okay, I've probably seen enough to to review it on the podcast, eh, but I'm enjoying it. So I'll keep watching it. And so I did that. Yeah. Again, not brilliant television, but I would say much less a guilty pleasure elevated by its tremendous cast and much more a solid TV show elevated by its fantastic cast. So uh, Gilded Age returns for season two this weekend. And then getting ahead of next week, uh, because it premieres next Thursday, and sometimes I try to review things early, and other times I'm like, okay, I'll talk about it on Friday, whatever. But since my review of All the Light We Cannot See has been up since it had its Toronto Film Festival premiere, I don't I don't need to, to hold back on, on this. Um, so yeah, All the Light We Cannot See is based, of course, on the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Anthony Doerr. It is adapted on the writing side by Stephen Knight, uh, he of Peaky Blinders and several movies that I like a goodly amount and several adaptations that I don't like very much. He had the inexplicable adaptation of A Christmas Carol for FX a couple of years ago. Um, and then it's all directed by Sean Levy, who, of course, uh, is one of the steering creative forces of Stranger Things, um, also director of features, including Real Steel. Uh, you might know him from hanging out in the box with Ryan Reynolds and Taylor Swift at one of this season's NFL games. Uh, I believe he also had a, a cameo in one episode of Welcome to Wrexham earlier in the season. Uh, so the story of All the Light We Cannot See is it's kind of hard to describe. It, it's kind of a two parallel narratives, one involving a blind French teen, the other involving a radio obsessed young German who, I mean, he's a Nazi. He's part of the <laughs> the Nazi German army. So that's what he is. But he's he's kind of a reluctant Nazi. And therefore, you can find it sweet when, thanks to the wonders of radio, the two characters are connected in ways that are emotional, romantic, whatever. Uh, the, the book is... I, th I feel like the book's probably a little bit overpraised, but not in a in a horribly dramatic way. It's it's a it's a well written and emotional book. It it has a lot of tropes that I don't love, regardless of their context. And so the the good Nazi trope is always one that's very difficult for me to stomach. And so not just the good Nazi trope, because the main character is a Nazi, but he's also sympathetic. Uh, but the fact that that means that you also need to have a somewhat cartoonishly evil Nazi, so you can be like, ah, that's what the real Nazis look like. Uh, this guy just got conscripted into it, but he, he really just likes radios. Uh, but the book, the book moves. The book is is nicely written. The book has a couple wonderful ideas that it builds out. Whether it's the way that uh, radio began to take this powerful position 
in World War II and uh, an almost magical connection between people. And so here it is definitely almost magical, but also because of the main character's blindness, there's this wonderful extended visual metaphor of these perfect recreations of Paris and then this French seaside town that her father uh, made for her and, and just a beautiful visual concept. Um, it's not an inherently adaptable property, but it has adaptable elements, which brings me to the Netflix series in which basically every single adaptation choice is wrong. I, I I'm not angry about this anymore. I'm sorry, Leslie. I would have been angry if we'd talked about it a month ago. Like, I, I, I'm going to bet that by the end of you talking about it, you'll wind up being angry. You, you think I'm going to talk myself into anger? Yes. I, that, that that does sound like me. I can't, I can't say that that doesn't sound like me. Um, no, uh, it's just, yeah, it, no, on, honestly, it, if you are a fan of the book, I, I think there is a distinct chance you will you will hate the series. It is It is a series that, makes one mistake of adaptation after another. And at around the halfway point, it stops being an adaptation at all. So certain aspects of it uh, are very similar for like the first hour. Second hour kind of has the fuzzy shape of the book. Third and fourth hours, it's off on its own. And at no point are the choices that it makes better. It's it, There is... So some of that is on night, just bad choices, bad structuring devices, fundamental misunderstanding of the magic of radio and overleaning on the magic of radio that for whatever reason, Sean Levy can't find a way to visualize the miniatures of Paris and, and Saint-Malo. They're there, but they're borderline irrelevant most of the characters have been changed in ways that are really uninteresting. I'm particularly annoyed by what they did to ATN, uh, the great uncle of the, of the blind girl uh, played here by, by the, by the wonderful Hugh Laurie, who would have been phenomenal casting as some version of the character from the book. He's unrecognizable from the book. There's a point in the third episode where the ATN character, uh, rides a motorcycle into a square with a machine gun on his shoulder. And I'm like, okay, you just didn't understand that character or, or this story at all. You, you just do not get it in the slightest. Um, and Hugh Laurie's not bad. Just the choices of the character that he's playing are almost all wrong. Uh, Mark Ruffalo as the main character's father, he is kind of bad. He's, he's doing a, 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 a broad and bland sing-songy Euro accent. Uh, and he's just kind of a, he's sort of a, a sainted good guy, but no nuance. And the character in the book is not a hugely complicated character. They obviously had to flesh out his presence in the show in order to get someone like Mark Ruffalo, uh, but they didn't do it in any interesting ways. Uh, the only good performance in the series at all is Aria Mia Loberti, who plays the blind girl. Um, she is uh, legally blind. Uh, I believe she was just a graduate student. She had never acted before. She's she's really good, and everything they give her to do is really stupid. And it's so sad to me because 
she's really good. In the good version of the miniseries, she could still star in it. And she doesn't. Uh, playing the playing the charming young Nazi, uh, Lewis Hoffman, who people will know from Dark, is just, he's just horribly miscast. And he's horribly miscast in a way that throws everything around him out of sync. The premise in this innocent young Nazi archetype requires that the character be young enough that you accept a certain conscription, but also a certain naivete that's believable. And on the page, you kind of do. I don't think you do entirely. In the series, you don't come close because uh, Lewis Hoffman is 25, 26, and he looks closer to 30 than he looks to 14 or 15. And so there are these stretches where they're pretending like this character is young, but instead he's a 30-year-old guy at an orphanage, a 30-year-old guy at a Nazi school, and at no point do you look at the character and go, oh, he was just too innocent. He couldn't know better. No, he is guy's roughly Nazi age and he's a grown-up. He he pretty much knows what he's doing. And so I'm not going to accept him as a romantic lead. I'm I'm sorry. You you cannot expect me to. And yet the show totally has no interest in the complexities of the fact that he is a Nazi and doing things for the Nazi cause. Um no, he's just sort of a, a somewhat callow love interest. It's it's a such a bad piece of casting. And uh, to me, even if everything else in the series worked perfectly, the miss in casting that character would drag everything down around it. Um, Yeah, I I would say that the first two hours are just kind of a bland mess. And then the next two hours are, are horrible. And, but again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not angry. And, I don't have a deep investment in the book. Some people have a deep investment in the book. I have to imagine those people are going to be much angrier than I am when they see what the series is, because the series is not the book in any way. The series could have been better than the book if someone had had good ideas, like, you know, uh, I don't think Lessons in Chemistry. I think Lessons in Chemistry is a lesser book. And I think it's a better series because it comes closer to roughly achieving the aspirations of the book. Uh, but also it makes a couple changes that work. It probably could have made a few changes beyond what they made and it would have helped things. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, um, to recap, premiering next week, all the light we cannot see. Unfortunately, it is just a bad example of adapting a prestige literary property as an attempted prestige series that does not in any way work. Uh, The Gilded Age is much closer to effective prestige. I thought the first season was hit and miss, Uh, never quite achieved its goal of being an 1880s New York Downton Abbey. I think the second season comes much closer. I think it is, I think it is roughly in line of what the show ought to be. Uh, Everyone Else Burns on the CW I found very likable, thought it had a lot of potential, and Shorzy, if you like Shorzy, if you like Letterkenny, it's coming back on Hulu. Dan, you recapped everything, but you forgot a show. Fellow Travelers on Showtime. Ah, darn the it. first thing that I said. <laughs> it's not that I wasn't listening to you. I just, I, I, I was so eager to get to all the light we cannot see that I um, just, I don't know, didn't. And... Uh, 
you know, some people will probably take that as a uh, sign about the quality of Fellow Travelers. And I don't think that's exactly the case for what it's worth. Uh, So Fellow Travelers is a um, multi-decade love story um, built around two Washington, D.C.-based characters. Matt Bomer plays Hawkins Fuller, a State Department uh, up-and-comer military hero who first befriends and then beds uh, Jonathan Bailey's Tim, uh, who is sort of an anti-communist true believer. Hawk gets Tim a job working for Joseph McCarthy, and so hence the title of the limited series. And over the years, their relationship shifts, changes. He marries the daughter of it. He, by he, I mean the Matt Bomer character, marries the daughter of a senator, played by Allison Williams. Allison Williams plays the daughter. The senator is played by Linus Roach. Uh, this all makes sense in my head. And the story takes place across three plus decades uh, because we know from the framing device that in the mid 80s, one of the two characters, it's not a surprise, but I'm keeping it a surprise here, even though you'll know the answer to the surprise within three minutes of the show. One of the characters is dying of AIDS. And so that's where the story goes. It is unavoidable that if you are going to tell a decade spanning gay love story that begins in the 50s and features Roy Cohen as characters as a character and carries into the 80s and AIDS that it is going to draw comparisons by people like me, but also in your head as well, uh, to Angels America. It is not that. It is not that because it has no real sense of visual poetry. It has no real sense of narrative poetry. It is a very, very straightforward story that has been confusingly Uh, made into a decade-spanning story, but also confusingly structured. So like five of the episodes are very, very specifically based around the McCarthy hearings. And you have the great Chris Bauer playing Joe McCarthy uh, wearing a a ridiculous prosthetic penis nose. It's it's just a a dumb piece of makeup. Um, And very good Will Brill playing Roy Cohn. Uh, But for the most part, it's, it's... So it's... Very straightforward. None of the stuff with the McCarthy stuff is all that interesting, but it sucks up all the energy for five episodes. Then suddenly the last three episodes hop through time a little bit with no real specificity historically. They're just like, okay, here's one in the late 60s. Here's one in the early 70s. Back to the 80s with a little bit of flashing back. It, it's it's a structural mess, unfortunately. Um, what makes it work is that uh, Jonathan Bailey and Matt Bomer are very, very good uh, the show is is very graphic and very unflinching in its in its sex scenes, but the sex scenes are all generally tied to to character based things. Th- their relationship is a tough relationship, and it's got a lot of shifting power dynamics that play out through their sexuality. I thought some of that was interesting. Mostly, I liked the two performances. I think Matt Bomer is is really great. If you've ever wondered what Matt Bomer would be like playing Don Draper, this is as close as you're ever going to get because the character is that sort of smooth operator um, with a soul, but with also a healthy dose of amorality that kind of pushes him along. It's hard to like him, but but Bomer makes the character very interesting. I thought Allison Williams was was great. I think that Allison Williams has probably gotten a bad rap by the general backlash against girls, however appropriate or inappropriate that was. 
inappropriate for the most part, but also the fact that people kind of decided that because they didn't like Marnie, that meant that Allison Williams was doing something very wrong as opposed to doing something very right. And I think if you look at uh, Get Out, if you look at Girls, I I think Allison Williams is really good at playing this kind of brittle, self-deluded character. And so here she plays a character who is married to a man who she thinks is the the perfect husband and perfect father, but she's also aware that he has these secrets. And, and so she just has to keep lying to herself and that until that becomes who she is. And I think that Alison Williams is, is tremendous. So basically you take three main characters, bit of a structural mess to the story, uh, whether the structural mess of the story and the drag of it all like this really realistically, this is a movie and it's a two hour movie that in, 2022 2023 media becomes a television series that's that's just what it is i think it would have been better told with a little bit more efficiency i think it would have been better told with more clarity as to whether it was supposed to be a story exclusively set in the 1950s a story set in the 1950s and 1980s a decade spanning story it it wants to be all those things it can't be but i think the actors acting is very good so um, apologies for leaving that out early. I know some people have been looking forward to this and some people are really going to like it. So sorry for leaving it out. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporters Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. We're always happy to hear from you. If you have questions for future mailbag segments or future topics, because this year we, this week rather, we wove a question that was mailbag question into a topic. Why not? We can do that. We're magical. There are no rules, Leslie. Anyway, the only rule is if you have a question for a mailbag segment, email us at tbstop5 at thr.com. That is tbstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.